Good morning. Thank you for that beautiful worship set. So I live in Southern California, and I've been married to my high school sweetheart for 21 plus years. Now my wife, her family is huge. And by huge, I mean her dad is one of 12. So can you imagine like beach get-togethers, family reunions? It's like, oh, new cousin, new aunt, new uncle. There's like 75 plus people when we just meet at the park. Well, every three or four summers, the entire family gets together and has some kind of family reunion. Well, a few summers ago, someone got the idea that we're going to stay in this place outside of Sacramento, and we would go whitewater rafting on, I think it's called the South Fork American River. Now, just to give me context, how many of you have ever gone whitewater rafting before? Okay, most of you have. We know when you go whitewater rafting, if you're not an expert, and I'm certainly not an expert, they give you rules about how you're supposed to conduct yourself on the river. One rule being, if you get thrown out of the boat, don't try to put your feet down. You could get caught. Don't swim to the side. Since you have a helmet and a life preserver on, lean back, put your feet up, and just ride through the rapids until you're done. That's like the instruction they gave us to start the day. Well, you can imagine since our family's so big, if I remember, we must have had five or six rafts just for our family. And as we start off for the day, they put my father-in-law front right. Uh, he's pretty strong. They put me in the front left. And I guess we helped kind of navigate this thing a little bit down the river. Well, we went all day. And in the morning, it was probably three, three and a half hours. And then you stop for lunch for about an hour. And then after lunch, you go about two, three hours in the afternoon. And I remember our guide, as we're about to get back in the raft for the afternoon, he says, okay, all morning we've had like ones and twos. This afternoon, we're going to have a couple level threes, which are not that intense if you're an expert, but if you're not, it kind of, you get thrown around a little bit and tossed. So all I can remember is we're rolling down, we're in this flat area, and he goes, okay, in just a moment, we're going to enter this rapid, and it's called the hospital bar. Now, first off, is it just me, or is it strange that they give names to rapids in the first place? But second, this one was called the hospital bar. And then what comes after it is called the recovery room. <laughs> All I remember is we're entering into this rabbit. We went down and we went left and it hit this rock and turned us so fast that my father-in-law, who's about 175 pounds, gets tossed, lands in the back of the raft. I get flipped over my head, land in the water. And if you've ever been thrown like this, I mean, you can't tell what is up and what is down. I try to come up and I just feel my head hitting the bottom of the raft. And although later I told the guy, I was like, man, I was under for a minute. He goes, honestly, it was like 10 seconds. It felt like a minute. When you get tossed out of the boat instantly, I remembered what he said. I was like, okay, I really want to get in the boat. But I leaned back, put my feet up, made it through the rafts. And then the recovery room instantly was like, how can I get back in this raft and get my breath back? Right? If you've been tossed out of a boat... The instant thought is, I need to get back to safety, especially if you're turned upside down. What happens when you get tossed in life when things don't go the way you want them to go? You ever thought about that? What happens when somebody's tossed out of the boat of life relationally, tossed out of boat spiritually, emotionally? What's their first thought? 
Now, if somebody is physically in jeopardy, nobody sits around and goes, gosh, there's a car accident. This person's bleeding. Should we go to a hospital or not? Like, I don't know of anybody who thinks that. Either you call 911 or you go to a hospital. But what if people had a certain perception of a hospital that was like, you know what? I think they're just in this for the money. I don't really trust hospitals. I don't think they really want to help people. Would that affect people going to a hospital? Of course it would. Of course it would. When somebody's life is turned upside down emotionally and spiritually and relationally, what's their first thought? You know, sadly, if certain studies are true, the first thought many people have is not, I need to go to a church or I need to go to a Christian because that's someone who will love and care for me. There was a study by David Kinneman, who's the president of the Barner Research Group, and Gabe Lyons, who has a, a ministry and a, a conferences called Q. And the focus of this book was to study non-Christians to see how they perceived the church. Now, this study was from a number of years ago, but I actually think the findings now, especially of what's happened through COVID and how divided we are today, if anything, are worse than when they did this. But they studied unbelievers and asked them, how do you think about Christians? What comes to your mind when you hear the idea of a Christian? And here's what they said. They said, number one, a common answer was hypocritical. They say one thing and do another. Number two, too focused on getting converts. Number three, anti-homosexual. In their study, they said, basically, if you tell somebody you're a Christian, you might as well say, and that means that I hate gays. He's saying, I'm not saying whether this is true or not. He's saying this is the perception of a large number of unbelievers. Number four, uh, sheltered. Number five, too political, which if anything has seemingly gotten worse. Number six, judgmental. And I would probably add a seventh to this. In the minds of many people, you might also add racist or white supremacists. Here's what they said, bottom line, after this huge study in their book on Christian. They said only a small percentage of non-Christians associate the church with respect, love, hope, and trust. I mean, just let that sink in for a second. According to this study, only a small percentage associate words like love, trust, respect, and hope with the church. Can you imagine if people feel that way about hospitals? <laughs> Nobody would go, and people would suffer. Well, when it's all said and done, what's more important, your health in this life or your health for eternity? Isn't it important that we take a hard look within and ask ourselves, are we really loving our neighbors the way that Jesus wants us to? One of the interesting things about what I get to do, travel and speak at different places, I just get to talk to people and hear their experiences and sometimes piece stuff together in a different perspective. And I asked this youth pastor, I said, you've been doing this about probably 15 to 20 years. I said, how has your experience as youth pastor changed over the past two decades? And he said, when I started, it basically was if we had pizza and fun activities and music, kids would show up. Like if you build it, they will come, right? And build, it means pizza, games, and fun. 
He goes, but in the past few years, we've heard increasingly from some people, like kids, like their parents, like, are you sure you want to go to a church? They're, what are they teaching there is bigoted, it's homophobic, and it's not love. And he goes, we've ran into that narrative more than we ever have before. You see how polarized, you know this, how polarized our culture is. Well, how as Christians should we respond in this moment? There's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and his name is Daryl Bach. He's one of the leading New Testament scholars in the world. And I heard him at a conference a few years ago say something that in one sense is so simple, but it's profoundly true. He said, when people in our culture today hear the idea that Christians are bigoted and hateful and racist and fill in the blank, he said, the only way to counter that is when the next thought the person has is of a Christian they know in relationship. And so they think, that doesn't ring true because I know Christians who are different. This is something all of us can do. And in fact, it's something that Jesus did. We're going to take a look at how Jesus modeled this for us in Mark chapter 2, if you want to turn there. If you can't find it, it's right after Mark chapter 1. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Mark. They laughed more in the first service at that one, Dees. This is revealing. Mark chapter 2, verses 15 and 17. A short passage you're familiar with. You guys are so tech-savvy given your bulletins, you probably have it on your phone. But I'll read it to us nonetheless. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 15. Mark 2, verse 15. And it says this, we'll read three verses. It says, And as he, Jesus, reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, the very first question that comes to my mind is, why would sinners want to be with Jesus, who's the only person who's never sinned? <laughs> Isn't that an interesting question? Like, think about times in your life where you were blatantly sinning. Were you looking for holy people to spend your time with? Or is there something outside of us that when we sin in shame, we hide? There's something about Jesus where he never compromised truth and he never sinned. But people wanted to be with him. That's the question we as Christians have to ask today. How do we live out truth uncompromisingly? but be the kind of people who non-Christians and, quote, sinners, which really is all of us, want to be with. Now, as this passage starts, it says this. It says, he reclined at table in his house. Now, we miss this in our culture, not just because of COVID. In many ways, haven't we just yearned to have a simple meal with somebody? <laughs> like, that's something I think we're appreciating more than in the past. But nevertheless, in our culture... I don't think we realize the significance of having a meal in the Middle Eastern culture. To dine with somebody was a sacred relational act. It was a way of saying, I, I accept you, I am friends with you. They would 
slow down in their day. If you've ever been to like Israel, I mean, they serve meal after meal, like different one, two, three, four, five different servings because they want you to slow down and enjoy the food and enjoy the conversation and enjoy the dialogue. There's something powerful about a shared meal. In fact, where does Judas learn that he's going to betray Jesus? It was at a meal. That's what partly made it worse. It's like, wait a minute, you were dipping bread with him, sharing a meal, and you betray him? So here's Jesus, son of God in human flesh, dining with these tax collectors and sinners. Can you see that what Jesus was doing was countercultural? <laughs> it's not what people would have expected Jesus to do. So that's why he gets pushback. It says, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. By the way, if you read this three verses, it says three times that Jesus is dining with tax collectors and sinners. Do you think the verse wants, the passage wants to make sure we don't miss this? So what's significant about dining with tax collectors and sinners? Well, keep in mind, notice that it mentions tax collectors. How many of you have seen the TV show, The Chosen, by the way? Have any of you seen this? If you haven't, it is so good. And I have no connection to this. I've been watching it with my son. It's a retelling. Uh, it's the first, as far as I understand, like multiple season, multiple episode series based on the life of Jesus. But they really show the human side of Jesus and his disciples. And as I think it's the first episode or early on, Matthew, who's a tax collector, you see how they have to hide him out of fear and shame for his life when he's going through this area because the Jews would be so upset at him. That's what he has to do. Why? Now, in that age, in that day, the oppressors were the Romans. They were occupying the Holy Land. And what they would do is the Romans would use certain Jews to tax their own people. So if you became a tax collector, you were basically working on behalf of the oppressors against your own people and then some of the tax collectors would siphon off the top for themselves, and there's nothing the Jews could do about it. Can you see why in that time the Jews would actually consider the tax collectors worse enemies than the Romans? Because the Romans are acting according to their worldview. The Jews should have known better, and the tax collectors are stabbing their own people in the back. Now notice something right away. What would you have thought if you were in that culture? if you saw Jesus dining with tax collectors? I mean, honestly. It's easy to sit here and go, yep, Pharisees, they're blind, they're hypocrites, they're idiots. But if you and I saw Jesus dining with the very people who were stabbing our own people in the back, wouldn't we be upset with Jesus? If we don't approach it this way, I think we will miss some of the lessons that apply to us. Now, by the way, when it says tax collectors and sinners, when I would hear this as a kid, I thought, oh, you must be dining with like murderers and prostitutes and those who have committed adultery. But I'm not sure that's what it's saying. Basically, the tax collectors, we know who they were. And the sinners were basically people that just failed to keep the law. So the Pharisees, who prided themselves in keeping the law, would look down at those who didn't. So here's Jesus, who claims to be the Son of God, claims to be the Messiah, 
dining with the very people that the Pharisees, who were the protectors of the law, thought that they shouldn't. Now, you know who the Pharisees are. One difference, you know, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are mentioned in Scripture. Sadducees based a lot of their relationship with God on temple work. So when the temple is destroyed in AD 70, the Sadducees disappear. The Pharisees were based on following the law, so when the temple's destroyed, they can still flourish as a people group. So they were people that followed the law and they knew the law of who you're supposed to dine with and Jesus isn't following the law, so they're upset with him. The tension he had between Jesus and between the Pharisees. Then he comes to the climax of the story and here's what it says. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let me say it again. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, is Jesus putting people into two categories, the righteous and the sinners? Is that what Jesus is doing? By the way, we all have a tendency to do this, right? Put people into one of two groups. In fact, uh, one of my favorite sayings is when people say there's two kinds of people in the world and then they fill in the blanks, right? My coach at Biola University, my basketball coach, he used to say this, and you're never going to forget this now. Here's the problem. He, He said there's two kinds of people in the world, those who return their shopping carts and those who don't. Isn't that brilliant? I cannot go shopping without thinking about that. Every time I'm like, you know what? I'm about to be that guy. Out of guilt, I'll return my shopping cart. But basically, are we the kind of people that think about others first or think about ourselves? Right? We all think, well, there's two kinds of people in the world. Is that what Jesus is doing? Is Jesus saying there's two kinds of people in the world, those who are righteous and those who are sinners? The answer is absolutely not. How do we know this? Because scripture makes it clear. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you know what all means in Greek? It means all. Yeah, there's nothing fancy to it. It means all. Romans 3 also says, no one is righteous. No, not one. First John chapter 1 John, the apostle Jesus says, if you say you have not sinned, you are lying. Scripture is clear. Jesus said it's out of the heart that comes wickedness and comes pride and comes lust and comes sloth. Scripture is clear that all have fallen short of the glory of God. So Jesus is not saying there's righteous and there's sinners. So what is he doing? Jesus is using righteous in a sense, ironically. It's not that there's righteous in sinners. All are sinners. When Jesus says he's not coming for the righteous, he's talking about the self-righteous. All have sinned and need God, but just like it's those who are sick who need a doctor, he's saying those who know they're morally sick, I've come for them not for those who are self-righteous. You see, ironically, the sinners Jesus was dining with and the Pharisees 
were just as equal sinners before the Lord. They both needed God. But one group knew it, and the other group thought their righteousness made them right before the Lord. So what Jesus says is, I'm not coming for the self-righteous. I'm coming for the sinners because they know they need God. By the way, who goes to a doctor? Is it sick people who go to a doctor? Well, yeah, but there's a lot of sick people who don't even know they're sick, right? So it's not just sick people who go. And by the way, are there sick people who know they're sick that don't go to a doctor? Sure. For a lot of reasons, people can be sick and not want to go to a doctor. Could be denial, could be expense, could be time, could be pride, you name it. Who goes to a doctor? It's those who are sick and those who know it and those who recognize that they can't fix themselves and they need a greater power to come in and fix them inside. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Everybody is sinful, but not everybody recognizes it. Jesus didn't just come for sinners, although in one sense he did. He said, I am spending my time with people who are sinful and who know it and who know that they need a savior because those people are open to the message of grace that Jesus has to offer. You know what I love about this passage? And the title of the sermon is Jesus was no moralist. What do I mean by that? Sometimes in Christian circles, we have all these morals we expect Christians and non-Christians in particular to follow. Some people call us the morality police. You know what I see Jesus doing? I don't see him showing up telling everybody how to live first. I see him showing up dining with people who are sinners, knowing that they need his medicine, his grace, to be transformed first, and then able to become the kind of people who will live the way that God wants them to live. Do you see how different this is? Jesus was not a moralist. And sometimes as Christians, we're moralists, aren't we? I think what Jesus is demonstrating is he reaches out to people who are broken, knowing that they need his medicine, his grace and love to be transformed on the inside. Then we can begin to live through his grace, through the body of Christ and through the Holy Spirit, the way that God wants us to live. Now don't mishear me here. I'm not saying this is a niceness contest, that if Christians were just nicer, more people would come to the faith. Look, Jesus was crucified. His message is offensive. He said, pick up your cross and follow me. And sometimes we speak about this like, oh, my cross is, my boss makes me work extra time or my neighbor listens to loud music. That's not what Jesus meant. He meant come and be ready to die when you follow me. The message of Jesus is offensive. It says we're miserable sinners and we're prideful and need to humble ourselves. But let us not put additional barriers by failing to love people the way that Jesus loved them that betrays the message of the love and grace 
of Jesus. Jesus knew if they were going to understand his message, he had to live in loving relationships with people. Now, by the way, with this said, when Jesus dined with them, was he simply accepting that their behavior was okay? The answer is no. Jesus didn't meet the woman at the well and be like, hey, to each his own. If you have had five husbands, that is your truth. I'm not going to judge. Jesus didn't say that. He didn't say, hey, if it feels good, do it. Hey, be true to yourself. Jesus didn't say any of that stuff. Jesus spoke truth because he knew only truth could set free. But he did it in relationship. He did it with grace. And he did it with kindness. The question is, do we Christians do that well? I'm not convinced that we do. Myself included. This is an area I need to grow in. There's a story this week that maybe some of you saw call about Captain America. Marvel announces that there's going to be a Captain America character who is gay. Any of you see this story? They announced it. Now, the story behind it is not Steve Rogers, the classical Captain America, but the shield gets lost in the story, which comes out June 2nd, by the way, which is the beginning of Pride Month, interestingly enough. The shield gets lost, and different people pick up the shield and fight for their oppressed communities. So a gay teenager picks up the shield and fights on behalf of LGBTQ runaway kids and plays the role of Captain America. Well, I read that article, and I tweeted out an article describing it, not criticizing it or supporting it, just informing people. And the kinds of comments that people tweeted back from Christians is just heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. I mean, my goodness, I tweeted another article this week. Maybe you saw that a biological male, so a trans woman, won the first female beauty contest. That's another story that happened this week. So I tweeted out an article about it, not supporting it, not criticizing it, informing people. And I will tell you, some of my atheist followers and friends were more gracious in how they interacted on the story than many of my Christian friends. Now, I understand that Twitter invites a certain kind of people in the dynamic. I get that. It's not a perfect cross-section of Christians. Trust me, I understand that. But think about your own use of social media and your relationships. Do you lead with grace? Do you lead with understanding? Do we lead with kindness or reactive and defensive and judgmental? That's a fair question. So I wrote a blog responding to Captain America. Actually, I haven't even posted it. And I, I thought that I'm like, there's three things that stand out. Number one, no one should be surprised that Marvel has a gay Captain America. If you're surprised, you've had your head in the sand for the last decade, right? I mean, they had a same-sex wedding in 2012 with North Star. Iceman, five years ago, iconic character of the X-Men came out gay. Like, no surprise where culture's going. But second, Marvel's a business. Of course, they're studying culture where people are at and trying to make moves to make a profit. Like, I understand that. But third, the writer of this is a trans writer who's writing this trying to help LGBTQ runaway kids. 
Now, I have a different worldview than this writer, but if we don't understand the heart of this person and we come off defensive, we're going to build walls instead of bridges. The reality is, LGBTQ kids are more likely to run away from home. They are more likely to be depressed and lonely and take their lives. No matter where you stand politically or morally on this issue, shouldn't that break our hearts? Rather than being defensive to the story, can we at least acknowledge that the writer is trying to help kids who are hurting? That builds charity. That builds understanding. But third, realize something else. When Captain America started in 1941, you know who the bad guys were, right? It was the Nazis. The Nazis were the oppressors. In this most recent issue that will come out in June, who's the oppressors? It will be anybody who doesn't accept the LGBTQ narrative, which, by the way, includes Christians. So a story like this is very informative in terms of how culture has changed. How culture has changed. So this, just two days ago, Friday, I interviewed a friend of mine. He's an author by the name of Caleb Kaltenbach. And his story is very unique because I interviewed him on the Equality Act. How many of you are just familiar with the Equality Act? Just show hands you fought. Okay, most of you. So the Equality Act is, I won't go into too much depth, but bottom line, many Christian thinkers have said this could be the greatest threat to religious liberty our country has ever faced, certainly within our lifetime. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. So I interviewed my friend Caleb Kaltenbach because he has a really unique story. Caleb Kaltenbach grew up and his parents divorced when he was two. His dad later entered into a gay relationship and his mom entered into a lesbian relationship with a woman. Both of his parents. He was raised in the LGBTQ community. He said one thing he knew was that Christians were the enemy. He said, because I saw the way they treated my moms. He said, to be honest with you, though, growing up in this community, I always felt safe. He said, we had a lot of parties. This is a fun group of people. He said, and on top of that, they loved me. But in high school, he went to a Bible study to be a pest, got captivated by this person, Jesus, became a Christian, tells his moms that he's a Christian, and they kicked him out of the house. Maybe the deeper issue is no matter our worldview, we're uncomfortable with people who don't think like we do and we respond reactively rather than lovingly. So I asked him in this interview, I said, I said, okay, what is the Equality Act and how should Christians respond? The first thing he said is this. He goes, Sean, this doesn't scare me. He goes, I do not live in fear. Let's face it. On issues, issues on race today, on issues like LGBTQ and others, as Christians, how do we often respond? We live in fear. What are they going to teach our kids? What, what's going to happen with religious liberty? And I understand those fears. But you know what 1 John 4.18 says? What's the response to fear? 1 John 4.18 says, perfect love casts out fear. That's the response as Christians. How do we love people in this polarized, divided culture 
where it's easy to surround ourselves with people who agree with us and pat us on the back and from a distance throw bombs like social media rants that make us feel better, but don't help advance the gospel. It's not what Jesus did. Jesus went and dined with sinners. He was criticized. He was looked down at, but he knew that it was sinners, so to speak, which is really all of us needed to see that grace lived out and embodied to consider embracing it in their own lives. So what does this look like? Let me just ask you a simple question. How do you show love to people in your life who are different? How do you show love to people in your life who are different? A different age, a different race, a different political position. How do you show love to them? Some of you might recognize the name Kirsten Powers. She's a, she was a columnist for USA Today. She was a commentator on Fox, commentator on CNN. Uh, probably about 40 years old, bright, sharp, articulate. Well, she grew up in a very secular home. And she said one thing her and her friends had in common when she lived in New York was they'd go out nightly and hang out, have a drink. And a common theme was bashing Christians and conservatives for being idiots, for ruining the country. She said, but one reality was she didn't even know any Christians in her life she had a relationship with. So it was easy to bash them, right? Isn't it easy to stereotype people and be critical when we don't know them personally and have not invited them into our lives? That's human nature. But the story, like many stories, goes like this. Until she met a guy, right? She met a guy who was attractive and fun and different. He was a Christian, but didn't fit the mold. But here's what he said to her. Are you ready to write this down? He said to her, keep in mind, she's on the left, politically liberal. He says this, he goes, do you consider yourself to be open-minded and tolerant and inclusive enough to go with me to church someday? If you're on the left, what are you going to say? Nope, I'm closed-minded, bigoted, and intolerant. Not going to happen. She's like, I had to go. So she goes to the church, and it happened to be Pastor Timothy Keller's church in New York, who, number one, is gracious in the way he communicates, but he was going through the series that became his book, The Reason for God. She had never heard the evidence that God exists, evidence for the resurrection, the gospel, ends up becoming a Christian. Now, in 2015, she wrote a book called The Silencing, which was kind of anticipating this cancel culture. So she's on the left more politically and probably in some theological areas, but she's pushing back on what she calls the illiberal left, what she calls kind of the intolerant cancel culture left, the extremists. And she writes this whole book pointing to how you see it in the media and education and in movies. And I'm reading this going, wow, this is more powerful because I'm conservative theologically. To have somebody on the left say this probably carries more weight culturally than if I said it to some people. And I get to the end, I'm thinking, okay, she's right on. What's her solution? And I get to the end, and her answer to all of this is basically three lines in one paragraph. So 
I'm sitting in my office and I read this $27 hardback book that took me, I don't know, five or six hours. I read one paragraph. I throw it on my desk like this. I'm like, really? I just spent hours and her solution is in three paragraphs? Like, give me a break. I could have just skipped to the end, got it and moved on. But then I thought about it some more. And then I thought about it some more. And I was like, actually that insight was worth the price of the whole book. You know what she said? She said, if you want to make a difference, go out and make some friends with some unlikely people. Go make friends with people who see the world differently, politically, religiously, fill in the blank. She said, it's actually when you get to know somebody that builds sympathy and understanding and love. And she's right. This is something all of us can do. All of us can do. So who do you reach out to in your life that is different? Who do you reach out to? And you might think, well, what do I say? Well, one thing Christians can do is just listen. M. Scott Peck wrote the book, The Road Less Traveled. And he said in there, he said, today, the best way to love someone is just to listen just to listen. We're not great at listening as Christians, are we? I mean, honestly, are we great at just listening to people who see the world politically and religiously differently than we do? Are we good at that? Can you imagine if somebody was hurting and their life was tossed out of the boat and their first thought was, I just need to find a Christian because a Christian will listen and empathize and love me. What if that was somebody's first thought? You know, it was last May that the whole George Floyd incident happened, and obviously our culture has erupted and responded radically to that. My son is 16, and he has a coach in his life who's, who's black, and I said to my son, I said, do you think your coach would be willing to just sit down and share his experience with us if we just listen to him? He goes, probably. So we called his coach and said, hey, we have no agenda here other than listening to you, trying to understand, and just hearing how you process this today. So we went out to eat, hour, hour and a half. We just listened. We asked questions. Try to understand, how do you make sense of this? What, what do I maybe not see from my vantage point? It was a great conversation. When we were done, it's interesting. He said, you know what? He goes, I want to encourage you guys because I had somebody else call me and say, hey, can you share your experience? He goes, sure, we sit down. I start talking about three minutes into it. He launches in into a political debate and talks most of the time. He goes, let me tell you, talking about race, he goes, this is personal to me. Like there's a lot of hurt in my life from this. And all he wants to do is tell me why I'm wrong. He didn't really want to listen. He goes, I sense you guys just wanted to listen and understand. He goes, that's the step to healing. What if we Christians just listen? And can I tell you, I'm a teacher. This is not easy for me. My daughter bought me a, a mug. I think it was a compliment. It said, I don't need Google. My dad knows everything. I'm going to take that as a compliment. Look, it's not easy for me. I read and I think and have opinions on things. I'm trying to get better at this. If we would just listen to people and empathize and love people, it'd be amazing how many times we get to speak back. A friend of mine, he's a youth pastor in Ohio, 
was asked to be the club advisor at a public school for the LGBTQ club. Now, don't raise your hands, but how many of you, when you hear that opportunity, would be like, yes, I will be the advisor for that group? My guess is a lot of Christians would be like, uh, no, not going to support that. Sorry. He's like, yeah, I do in a heartbeat. I asked him, I said, why did you do it? He goes, think about it. These kids wanted to hang out with me. Why wouldn't I do it? I was like, fair question. So he goes into this club, and I said, what were the conversations like? He said, as best I could tell, a lot of the conversations where these group of kids felt that they were hated, marginalized, like they just kind of saw themselves through this victim lens. He goes, that's how they saw the world. Finally, they asked me, they're like, why don't you hate us? He goes, look, I'm, I'm a Christian. I think you're made in God's image. I love you guys. So like, really? What does the Bible say about homosexuality? He goes, we turn to some passages, but rather than going to like Sodom and Gomorrah and Leviticus 18, he goes, I actually just wanted them to go to Jesus. So we went to the Gospels. And in a public school, in the LGBTQ club, they're reading the words of Jesus, talking about his heart for the marginalized. Eventually, he told me four of them came to his youth group and three of these kids trusted Christ and became followers of Jesus. Now, how did that start? His willingness, like Jesus, to dine with people who were different, to risk having the religious elite criticize them, but out of a heart of love for people stepping out of his comfort zone. I said, how did this change you? He said, honestly, before this, I didn't realize it, but I did have some animus in my heart towards the LGBTQ community. I thought they were ruining religious freedom and they hated us. He said, God broke my heart to see these kids who were hurting. How do you show love to those who are different? How do you show love? How do you show love to non-Christians in your life? And what's one practical thing you can do to better love people around you? That's it. I was riding with a pastor on the way to speak, and we went by this Unitarian church, like two or three miles from the church, and I said, hey, have you ever gone in and talked to the pastor? He goes, why would I do that? They don't believe the same as we do. And in my mind, I'm thinking, why wouldn't you do that? If you don't, who's going to go talk to this guy about Jesus? You're actually the perfect person because you're a pastor. It's not that hard. Take him to coffee. Hear his story. Just love on this person. Begin a relationship. And if they see love in your life, maybe you'll have an opportunity to share the gospel. That's it. That's it. Now, some of you might be thinking, how do I do this? It's intimidating. Like Mike had asked a tough question. At 5 o'clock today, Pastor Jason asked me to give a talk like what skeptics wish Christians knew. The idea will be a specific plan based on the book of Proverbs of questions that you can ask to engage somebody in spiritual conversation. Friends, it's not that hard. So I hope if you're able, you'll come at five to learn some practical things that all of us can do, myself included, to better love those in our polarized culture in the way that Jesus would love them. Isn't that something that all of us can do? If it's helpful, you mentioned the book, I'll wrap up, Evidence That Demands a Verdict is over there. My dad wrote this book. He actually set out to disprove Christianity. 
and he was surprised that the evidence became a believer. But a lot of people think in evidence that demands a verdict, it was the evidence that drew my dad to the faith. It wasn't. The evidence got his attention, but it was the love of Christians and his understanding of the grace of God that drew him. We have to be ready with answers because what I found as Christians, we're sometimes unwilling to engage non-Christians because we're afraid they'll ask us tough questions and we don't know the answers. When we take the time to learn answers, you not only can minister to and help people, but it will give you a confidence as well to engage. So if that's helpful, pick up a copy. By the way, if you're here and you're skeptic and you're not a believer, somebody dragged you to church this morning, that book is a gift for you if you just promise me you'll read it. Now, by the way, that's a pretty big commitment. If you're not a believer, I don't want your money. It is like grace, it's free. All I ask is that if you take it, that you just read it. That's it. Now, if you hear and you know a skeptic, you have to pay for it or my wife and I will go broke. But if you're not a believer and you would genuinely read, just come up and say, hey, I'm a seeker and I would be honored to sign it and give it to you for free. That would be my treat. That aside, I hope we'll see you today at five o'clock. Father, thanks for this church. Thanks for the exciting news about growing and expanding and maybe having a building. And I pray you just put your loving arms of wisdom and creativity and vision around this church to continue to reach this generation that desperately needs you. I pray you'll empower all of us right here to have eyes that are opened up to see those who need your grace and love. And may you use us to demonstrate and live that out in their lives. And God, we pray us in your name. Amen. Amen. We thank Sean just as he sets off.